Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Cloudy skies, welcome to this Thursday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, Atlanta's Transportation Commissioner Josh Rowan joins me to discuss the plan for bringing e-scooters back to Atlanta. We learned some lessons the hard way last time around when, when the market got flooded with the scooters and really looking at, at who can partner with the city. One of the things we're really concerned about now is, you know, areas where essential workers may be struggling with transit reduction and, and really how does it fit as a transportation solution, not necessarily just something for joyriding, if you will. That conversation coming up in just a moment. But first, an update on the Ahmad Arbery case. A preliminary hearing date of June 4th has been set for the three men accused of murder in the fatal shooting of Arbery. Gregory McMichael, Travis McMichael, and William Bryan Jr. are currently in custody. Lawyers for the McMichaels say the public has unfairly rushed to judge their clients. The attorney for Bryan says he was just a bystander. Meanwhile, the legal team for the Arbery family has maintained the killing was racially motivated and therefore they want federal hate crime charges added. In other news, here's the latest information as it relates to the coronavirus here in Georgia. As of 9 a.m. today, there are 44,932 confirmed COVID-19 cases. The number of deaths statewide is reported to be 1,957. And there are 7,746 hospitalized. All this information is according to the Georgia Department of Public Health, again, as of 9 a.m. today. And in related news, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp is scheduled to give an update on the state's COVID-19 response efforts later today. Now, based on remarks the governor made while visiting Macon yesterday, the expectation is the governor will lift more restrictions. We can't keep fighting the virus from our living room. You know, we, we're, the hospitals have been fighting it every day right here. They're, you know, our first responders are fighting it on the streets out there every day. And the general public's got to learn to do that as well. And I believe that they have. And that is from the Making News outlet, WMAZ. Kemp's press conference is scheduled for 4 p.m. And finally, Atlanta-based rappers and business owners Killer Mike and T.I. are partnering with the Wellstar Health System to provide free meals to frontline workers. Now, healthcare workers can pick up meals from the Bankhead Seafood truck today until 2 p.m. So at the time of this broadcast, you got about an hour. The truck is parked at Wellstar Atlanta Medical Center South. This is Closer Look.
Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. During this time, you may have noticed more folks are biking, running, walking, and even skateboarding. But not so much with another mode of microtransportation. Now, earlier this year, the Atlanta City Council passed legislation with revised regulations regarding, hold on, shareable dockless mobility devices, or as we plain folk call them, e-scooters. Now, the updated regulations include mandates for e-scooter operators and how the permitting process will now work if companies want to operate their scooters in Atlanta. Well, I'm joined now by Josh Rowan. He's the city's inaugural commissioner of the Atlanta Department of Transportation. Commissioner Rowan, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Oh, anytime. Thank you for having me. I want to begin here because at the time of this conversation, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms has just announced the city will enter phase two of reopening. Now, does that include that the e-scooter operators can drop some scooters here or we'll need to get into that later? Because as of right now, I don't really see many. No. If, and if I may back up a little bit, mm-hmm. one of the, the things that we did was when the stay-at-home orders were first placed, the the scooters were deemed non-essential and we asked them to pick up their devices. So that's why you haven't seen them. Mm-hmm. In the background, we had city council approve a process to implement a, a new permit for the, the scooters. We have conducted that that permit process and have made our final recommendations to the, the mayor for her approval. Yeah, we'll get into that in just a second. So to be clear for our listeners, with this permitting process, there will be a maximum number of e-scooter companies allowed to operate in Atlanta? C- correct. I think we had nine operating before. We, yeah. we will select. Generally speaking, it'll be two to three scooter operators. Plus, we also want to look at the diversity of the fleet. So introducing e-bikes, even the sit-down scooters. And so it'll be fewer operators with fewer total number of devices. Will that weigh heavily in favor of one company if they're able to offer e-bikes and scooters, maybe? No, it's really, really looking at, you know, who who's going to provide the best service. We, we learned some lessons the hard way, I think, mm-hmm. the last time around when, when the market got flooded with the scooters and really looking at, at who can partner with the city. One of the things we're really concerned about now is, you know, areas that where essential workers may be struggling with transit reduction and, and really how does it fit as a transportation solution, not necessarily just something for joyriding, if you will. So that's the focus for why you all would want to give a contract to an e-scooter company that it is part of being a viable mode of transportation for folks to get to and from work or to and from school, not just for folks to enjoy on the belt line, but one might argue, well, listen, therefore entertainment too. What's your response to that? Yeah, we're hearing a lot of stories, uh, you know, emails from folks saying that, you know, they have a four mile walk to their nearest train station and that's just a little too far and that there, there's been an uptick and in, in having to, to commit funds to ride share to get to work. And so we're, we're concerned about, you know, how can, how can we use our, our public spaces, specifically the streets, to support economic recovery? And, and the scooters are going to have a place in there. Mm-hmm. And, and first and foremost, it's, it's going to be as, as a transportation solution really around transit maybe replacing in areas where where there's been service drop-off, connectivity to the rail stations, and and working with the the various operators to to really support the the needs of the workforce as they get get in and out of of the city. So regions will play a part in this. In some areas where you just mentioned there may be a reduction in MARTA bus service or if there is a, a long commute to the nearest MARTA station. So you're going to be looking at perhaps specific neighborhoods that might 
require more of these scooters and, and ask your operators to make sure they have a sufficient amount of scooters available for certain regions? Is that what you're saying? That's correct. And, and it dovetails with part, part of the announcement this morning, the administrative order regarding using streets for economic recovery. We you know, we know that the sidewalks are not where we want the scooters. And in many cases, the the streets aren't quite ready for the devices. And so we're looking at what we can do to to provide that space. And it's really looking closely at the, the connectivity to the MARTA stations and, and what that means for the, the, the workers. You know, who mm-hmm. really looking at a model where people who are living west and southwest of the city needing to get into Midtown or Buckhead, how, how we we can support that that transportation without a car. Commissioner Rowan, you just mentioned lessons learned from this first venture with these e-scooters where, you know, some companies just came into Atlanta, dropped scooters off. You all didn't even know about it. I think at one point, as you mentioned, we might have had nine scooter companies operating here in Atlanta. What are the top two lessons you think came out of that for the city? The, the two biggest changes in my mind that we made in this permit process, one is, is just how we're, we're permitting them. We won't have nine operators. Mm-hmm. It'll, it'll be less than that. The other thing is we're, we're going to implement a system where we have a primary permit for an initial 500 devices, and then we will have sub-permits in increments of 500. So that gives us the, the ability to control the size of the fleet. So mm-hmm. if, if we see an operator who's not operating in a manner that, that we we think is beneficial to the city, we have more control over the fleet size and, and as well as their permit to to work with them to to provide a, a service and not have necessarily what I think we all used to joke the, the scooter clutter where we were just oversaturating mm-hmm. areas of the city go fighting for ride share. So that's going to be a, a big change is just in that how we permit the devices. The other the other one Number two is, is the fewer operators. So we're going to be able to work more, cl- more closely together. And, and knowing this is a, an iterative process, they've, I think they've also learned over the last 18 months better how to read the demand and, and where to deploy their devices. And the process for companies to apply, it will be through the city's Department of Transportation, through your department. That's correct. That's correct. In fact, we have, we have already implemented that, that process and have, are finalizing our selection and, and working with the, the mayor's team to, to get approval, essentially to cooperate with this, this phase two easing, a slow rollout of the scooter devices. Now, there were some issues obviously last time too with you all having to pick up scooters and you're having to, for lack of a better word, almost house them. And, you, and I think there are fines levied to some of these scooter companies. Has all that been worked out? Has everybody paid you basically that owes you? So mostly, yes. We, that, was, that was the end of the year. We, we had quite a bit of attention given to the scooters that were picked up and housed down at our Claire Drive facility. We worked out a, a model where we looked at the cost for what the city had expended and, do, and doing that work to, to police the right of way and worked with the scooter companies to, um, for them to pay their, their proportional share of that. Mm-hmm. Every operator who was in the city at the time has paid with the exception of one. Um, Lime has not paid us, but everyone else has. Are you all sending Lime a nice letter saying? <laughs> just, just emailed them last week with the news of 
them merging with Uber, assuming they now have some money to pay their bills. So, yeah, we're, we're chasing that one down. <laughs> the voice you hear is Josh Rowan, Atlanta Department of Transportation Commissioner, and we're talking about new regulations regarding e-scooters. Something else that I noticed, too, Commissioner, was that I guess beginning June 1st of this year, you all are going to require e-scooter operators to submit what you call monthly summary reports. So what's expected in those reports? Yeah, and that's that's really similar to what we had been doing before. We we want to see where the where the trips are being generated, where the areas are being served, and, and work with them to to optimize the service as, as we move forward. Is there any penalty if these reports are not submitted in a timely manner? Or yeah, if if you go back and look at the legislation, we we give ourselves a lot of latitude within mm-hmm. the new permit to administratively make changes, including fines. Ultimately. As commissioner, I, I have the ability to suspend permits if, if they're not cooperating with us. So that's another change that's been made is that our team is able to be more hands-on and, and address issues as, as they come up. Let's talk about what's new or if anything has changed regarding the operation of these scooters in terms of the rider. First, will that 9 p.m. to 4 a.m. riding ban, will that still remain? That is going to remain. What we've said is that it's it's worked. And so unless there's some, some data that shows that, that we need to reverse it, we don't want to just arbitrarily say, okay, the, the nighttime ban is, is finished. So we're, we're, we're evaluating it very closely, but as of now, it's staying in place. And what about age requirements, Commissioner? Will that be regulated by you all or the scooter operator? So, you know, the, the scooter operators are, are responsible for the overall operation of the device. The that type regulation, it would be housed in, in their app. We've even looked, talked to some of them about a learning mode that where the first few rides, it's, it's a slower speed, so mm-hmm. you can get more comfortable. There's there's some early indications that show that a significant percentage of, of the accidents happen within the first 10 rides on a scooter. So we're we're working with them on the, the safety side of, side of their operation. And no riding on sidewalks, that will continue as well. Yeah, we, we don't want scooters on the sidewalks. That's a no-go, and, you know, it, it's, in fact, in violation of city code, so mm-hmm. that's going to continue. Did you all seek any input from the e-scooter operators you all had worked with before? Did you look to see what other cities across the nation were doing in terms of regulating the e-scooters? We did talk to a few of the operators, but to your question, we found mm-hmm. the better help was working with other cities with our peer cities and areas like D.C., Nashville, Tampa, Charlotte, just seeing what had worked for them and some of the things that they were doing. One of the things that came out of that that conversation was was actually as part of the permit, we, we require that an operator post a bond so that should there be issues like there were in the past, we're actually able to claim against their bond and it doesn't turn into quite quite a drawn out issue that we had before. There's been a lot of conversation about should there be a requirement to wear helmets? You know, obviously, depending on whom you ask, you'll get a different answer. But is there any regulation around wearing of a helmet? We don't have a, a helmet regulation. I personally am, am a helmet person. I know that there have been there were a couple operators in other areas who tried to have helmets included with their device. It was similar to early on with the pandemic. There were operators who had Clorox wipes mm-hmm. attached to the stem of their device, and those things just managed to get stolen. I think that's one that's that's very difficult to manage and to, to oversee. And and there are some there's some conversations around you know how effective is is the helmet on a scooter. 
And so, you know, we're, we're putting the, the burden on them as far as the safe operation of, of their devices. If, if we start seeing an uptick in, in head injuries, we'll obviously hit the pause button and come back and, and reevaluate what's going on. Well, that's a good lead into my next question. How do you evaluate if there needs to be a suspension of the operation of the e-scooters? Is it based on accidents, fatalities? You know, tragically, I believe in the city of Atlanta, we had three or four last time and Obviously, some will say, well, look, one is too many. We're going to be having a, essentially a monthly roundtable with these folks, looking at their, their performance data, and as well as any accident data that's available. So I think it's, it's building again on those lessons that we've learned. We, mm-hmm. we want to keep them off the sidewalks. We want to keep them you know, in, in safe parts of the street and not just necessarily have them scattered all, all over town. We're looking through some of our Safer Streets projects that can we, can we encourage them to use certain corridors and stay off other corridors? And so a lot of the, the safety side of this, I think, actually can be driven by the where, where they ride and then the, the changes that we as the city can make to the streets to provide safe passage for them. And, Commissioner, are you all looking at the model of the e-scooters? Now, from what I understand, there are some pretty high-tech, fancy e-scooters out there. Are you all looking at the models that these operators will have on the streets of Atlanta? Yeah, we, we have. We, we, we specified certain parameters related to the scooters, although if, if you dig a little deeper, it looks like many of them get their devices from the same manufacturer and then are, are customizing them for their, their branding purposes. So, you know, the things like the nine inch wheels, it's, it's showing that slightly bigger is better. Mm-hmm. We do like the, the slightly heavier deck. I had mentioned before, I'm, I'm six foot seven, so I feel like I'm bent over when I'm on one. I don't know that there's an option for a longer stem on those, but you know, it's the devices continue to get better. Mm-hmm. But if, if you look at the ones that are in operation, most of them are coming from the same manufacturer. And so the, the differences are very subtle. Let's talk about sanitation for a moment because obviously we're in this state right now where that is of critical importance. Whenever these e-scooters are allowed to come back to the city of Atlanta after you all make your selections, can you really enforce and mandate that they try to keep these scooters, you know, sanitized? Yes. In fact, that's where the, the conversation is resides right now, where we're having conversations with them about really before we allow any operation, we want to approve a sanitation plan and see what all is involved. And so that's that's also where we've, we've worked with other cities to look at how they're requiring sanitation of the devices, which essentially is gonna be, how are you cleaning them and what's your frequency? And mm-hmm. so we, we will wanna take a look at all of that before we, we allow operation. And as we wrap up, I guess a question everyone wants to know, so when can we expect to see some more of these scooters out? So we've developed an implementation plan. We, we've submitted it to Mayor Bottoms for her to review and, and comment. And, and I don't want to get out in front of her on that. Sure. But it, it does coincide with her phased reopening plan. So as we enter the phase two, assuming we stay in phase two, it would it would be a summer of this year. So it's it's sooner rather than later. And finally, Commissioner, you know, depending on whom you ask, e-scooters are a key component in Atlanta's overall transit landscape. They are considered part of the micro-mobility movement. My question for you, by your estimation, does this new legislation offer the best measures to ensure, obviously, safety, but also that it's a viable mode of transportation for the Atlanta area? 
I believe it does. And, and one of the things we, we talked about and, and we, we shared with city councils, we went through this process was that we wanted to go through this with the mindset that we wanted micro mobility to be successful, to be a, a viable transportation solution. And, and what were the things that we could do to, to really support, support this? And, and as I mentioned earlier, one of the big things is just giving the department some flexibility to make changes as we go forward. And so that's, we've, we've put a, a, a heavy weighting on the, the company's ability to respond to the, the changing environment. Mm -hmm. And so that's going to be critical because we're going to do better the first time out of the gate when we come back. But there's still going to be areas where we can improve. And, and we're just, it's going to be this continuous improvement process to ultimately you know, stand them up where they, it's a successful model in the city. But we do feel good. We're going to start with far fewer devices fewer operators and kind of ease our way back into it. And that also depends on the e-scooter operators that they are adhering to the guidelines and regulations that you all have set forth. So it depends on them yeah. too, correct? Yeah, the burden's on them. We think that we can create a, an environment for them to do very well as, as long as they, they play by the rules that we've set forward. Have you looked into maybe the city should have their own e-scooters and that would be we, additional we have, revenue? We've talked about it. We've done no more than talk about it. It's just, it's just been a conversation. So we're, we're not ready to pull the trigger on that yet. But we, we, we do have those really with anything. We have the conversation that could we do this more effectively ourselves? Mm -hmm. Right now, we're, we're not prepared to, to go down that path with the scooters. All right. Josh Rowan is the commissioner for Atlanta's Department of Transportation. Commissioner Rowan, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Oh, anytime. Thank you for having me. I look forward to when I can sit back in the studio with you and give you a hard time about college football. <laughs> Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. It's one of Atlanta's annual signature events. It generates approximately $60 million in revenue for the city and attracts more than 30,000 attendees from around the world twice a year. It's a family-owned business with roots right here in Atlanta that date back to 1947. This year would have been the 74th annual Browner Brothers International Beauty Show taking place in August. But like a lot of annual events and happenings, this year, it won't be taking place, at least in its traditional physical sense. Now, we'll get to that in a moment. It's more than just about vendors selling hair and beauty related products. Annual attendees call it an ongoing movement in black and Atlanta history. And joining me now is James Bronner, Senior Vice President of Show Operations. James, thanks for taking the time. Good to have you back on the program. Glad to be back with you, Rose. Always a pleasure. Let's begin here because I mentioned that $60 million economic impact on the city that's generated by these two annual events, but it also means an economic loss for vendors and employees. How difficult was it for y'all to have to make this decision that uh, you weren't going to have it this year? 
It was very difficult. Um, as you know, we have a 74 year legacy in history. We haven't missed a year. Mm -hmm. And this is our first time in all those 74 years not having a physical event. So it won't be a total loss of revenue for the vendors uh, because we will uh, have a virtual show. Mm -hmm. So that was the safest way that we saw to do it. Uh, we looked at the data. Uh, we didn't want to make an emotional decision. And we didn't want to just make a financial decision because that's short term. So if you're, you're, you're stylists and the barbers and the students, if they come into an environment that's unsafe mm -hmm. and contract this disease, then it's going to affect them long term. So we've lost uh, some of our, our legacy stylists, uh, like Charles Gregory, mm -hmm. you know, the Halle Berry's hair. And just he's he's been with us for over 30 years is just one of our celebrity hairstylist he judges our competitions and we lost him due to this COVID-19 so mm -hmm. we've had barbers that you know we're still trying to, to, to see about clients uh, before the lockdown that people came in with symptoms and, and gave it to them that has lost their lives so we didn't want to increase that because in order to keep six feet uh, that's hard to do in a place where you got 30,000 people. So the, the the space of the Congress Center where it's held is just not enough space to allow six feet of separation. Mm -hmm. So there's logistically not a safe way to do it at this time. And they've been trying to figure it out. Uh, the mayor has been, her office has been working with us trying to figure it out. There have been a lot of large events canceled because it's, it's, just, it's just difficult logistically same mm -hmm. thing with the school system you know yeah. you got a class with 30 kids it's hard you know they're trying to figure out how to do that keeping them six feet apart mm -hmm. so that was kind of what went into the decision uh, we listened to the experts and you know the cdc is right here in atlanta and they're not recommending large gatherings uh, mm -hmm. almost any time this year the president's task force on this who's looked at all the data worldwide they're not recommending it so we didn't want to just go by, you know, we're experts in the hair industry, but not mm -hmm. as far as disease. So we listen to those that have studied disease for 30 years and those who are studying it day in and day out. And we're following their advice. For those registered attendees, exhibitors and vendors, um, have you all had to return any fees or costs to them that might have paid up front? How, how did you all work through that? So the attendees that had registered, we issued them a full refund. So the reason we did that, a lot of conventions, they basically were giving them credit uh, to go to the next year's event whenever they have it. But we understand uh, a lot of people right now, especially in the beauty industry, they're hurt for finances. So we didn't want them to have trusted us with the, the deposit on registration and then have to wait another year. Uh, before they could actually use what they paid for. So mm -hmm. even though we're having a virtual event, we're letting them make that decision uh, whether they want to use that money for that. But right now we, we put that back into their account to use for critical needs right now. Mm -hmm. So ex ex exhibitors uh, in a similar fashion, they will have the option uh, whether they would want to carry over uh, their exhibition money to the virtual event It'll, and that event will probably be less uh, cost for them. Mm -hmm. but they will be able to cover over a, a portion of it for that and, or get a refund. We have refunded uh, 
vendors already as well. So we'll leave that up to them. Mm -hmm. But my guess is the majority of them uh, will go into the virtual event. And we're going to get to that virtual event in just a moment. I want to shift and talk about the business for a second, James. How much does these two annual events generate for Brown and Brothers each year? It brings about 60 million to the city, and that's including uh, from the vendors, ticket sales, restaurants, hotels, uh, all of the local shopping that they do, which is about 30 million uh, per show. Mm. So it and it is a it is a revenue generator for for Bronner Brothers. So the the virtual event, since it's our first time doing it, we don't know how much of that will be replaced. Uh, but we're going to do our best and we just have to, to wait and see. Um, the other part of Bronner Brothers are the actual products. So yeah, I want to get to that in a moment. Opening. Yeah, so at least stores are opening back up. So that's helping out there. If you're just tuning in, I'm joined by James Bronner, Senior Vice President of Show Operations for Bronner Brothers. You mentioned product. You all also produce hair and beauty products. Uh, has that production slowed or stopped due to the pandemic? So the, the pandemic has affected us because Beauty and Barber uh, stores, they closed, uh, you know, over the last month and, and many of states are just now starting to open up. So that first month, it probably hit us about 50% uh, mm. down on sales. Uh, we are also in the Walmarts and grocery stores and drug stores. So those were able to stay open and that's how we were able to keep the other 50%. But, and of course, we have professional lines that sell in, in barber shops and beauty salons, but those were closed. So that's what's, what took us down, but they're, they're opening back up now. We did make a shift. So even though the hair products went down about 50%, we were able to make up some of that portion because uh, we make products like Pump It Up and that has alcohol in it. So mm -hmm. we took the alcohol that we used to make Pump It Up and we began making hand sanitizer because you couldn't get it in the stores and it kept our employees working. So our manufacturer was able to, 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 to institute the safety rules with six feet apart and mask and temperature checking and gloves. And we were able to continue making hand sanitizer. So that uh, shifted things to, to help us, and that's called Germless is our hand sanitizer. The Bronner Brothers not gotten the hand sanitizer business. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, and it's important because Absolutely. The, the beauty salons, when they were opening, they were saying, we can't get hand sanitizer. We need to sanitize uh, often now, so it's able to, to provide safety there uh, for those shops. Now, James, did you all have to, were there any layoffs or furloughs? for your company? No, so we did not have to do any layoffs or furloughs because of the hand sanitizer. So that helped us. So, and because we were not doing a, a physical show, so at the time it kind of stopped all show activity. So my show staff actually had to come and help out in manufacturing to get orders out. So, so they actually needed some help there. And I actually got out there with them. So I, I got out there. I had six of my kids out there working in manufacturing. So we just rolled up our sleeves and, and got the job done to, to ship out because the demand was so great mm -hmm. uh, because they couldn't find it. So we had to ship out orders all over the country. And as you mentioned earlier, there's this exclusive virtual experience. What does that include? Well, we try to, we're going to try to mimic the physical show 
as close as possible. So it'll be a 3D looking type of experience where you will come into this uh, building like the Congress Center and you'll, you'll go through registration and you'll be seeing virtual people and all of that. And it'll have a virtual exhibit hall. So you'll have these 3D renditions of booths. So much like if you've seen the game, The Sims, so it looks something like that. And you'll be able to walk up and, and talk to, they'll actually have, so they'll have live booth reps from the company that'll yeah. be from their home or their office. And you'll be able to interact with them video or uh, audio or text. And you'll be able to, they will have their own uh, show deals and a store there. So you'll be able to make purchases the same way as you would at a physical show. And then they will have classes the same way where they'll be video based. You'll be able to interact with the instructor and we'll have comp hair competitions hmm. uh, this in, in the same manner. So they'll be able to win prizes and show their skills. And, and then we'll also have entertainment uh, like our hair battle. So it'll, so we will still mimic the physical show as close as possible. Uh, I haven't heard of any other beauty shows doing this yet. So we mm -hmm. are kind of innovating with this. The, the, the good thing about it, uh, I didn't know that some of my past training would come in handy for such a time as this. So the good thing, actually, I went to school for computer engineering. Mm -hmm. So I never knew I would have to have <laughs> to use it now. So so I'm actually having to find the technology and build it out and, and construct it uh, myself. But the good thing is I've been prepared for this. So that's that's a good thing. I went to Georgia Tech here that's right. to study for a time such as this. <laughs> now, James, you know, I have these beautiful locks, so I should be able to find <laughs> a virtual hairstylist to tell me how to keep my beautiful locks moisturized and tight, right? That's right. And, <laughs> and even the social aspect of the show. So we will have a, it's going to be a virtual lounge where you'll be the, because the show is not just a, a business thing. People look at it, stylists look at it like a family reunion for the industry because mm -hmm. they're coming from New York and California and other countries. It's, it's sometimes the only time they get to see each other during the year. So, so we want to have those virtual areas where they can congregate and talk and chat. So even we're, we're reproducing as much as possible online. Now, I also want to shift for a moment because, as you mentioned, for a lot of hair salons and, and barbershops and that use your products or any products and those that had to shut down for some time, you all understanding that. And you all are also helping fund a a fund for stylists and for folks to apply to, to get some assistance, correct? Correct. So we've done doing several things because we recognize just like our sales were down 50 percent most of their sales were down a hundred percent. When your shop is closed, you're not making any money. And we've been hearing this all over the country. So the first thing that we did is we set up and we know the government, you know, they were giving away $4 trillion and we wanted this industry to get their fair portion. Mm -hmm. So the first thing that we, the need we saw, a lot of them, they didn't understand how to fill out all of the paperwork for the PPP and, and all of the small business association loans mm -hmm. and, and just all of the things that they had access to. We, we found that they didn't know about it, even unemployment. Normally, you have to be working somewhere to get a, a regular paycheck to get unemployment. But with the CARES Act, they made they allowed independent contractors, as many of our barbers and beauticians are, mm -hmm. to participate. So we put all of that information 
uh, in a simple to understand form, including videos, walking them through how to fill out the forms. So we, we put that information together for them, first of all, so they could get as much government money as possible. Now, over the last few weeks, we were hearing that our industry wasn't getting their fair share of the money. So even though they fill out the applications mm -hmm. and even the unemployment, they just weren't getting their money like the rest of the country. So we called up a lot of our other sponsors and vendors that normally participate with us during the show. And we started the Brunner Brothers uh, Beauty and Barber Relief Fund. Mm -hmm. So we realized that, you know, if, if it's up to us, we, we've got to pull it together and, and make a difference. So we've started this fund where they can apply and get up to from $500 to $1,000. So it won't cover all of their bills, but it will help them some. Mm -hmm. So we've, we put that at BrunnerBrothers.com and also the... We have a separate website that they can go to is blackbeautyrelief.com and they can apply right there and get awarded. And we'll have links to both of those websites on our website. As we wrap up, you're quoted as saying, if my father, Nathaniel Bronner Sr. was here, he would challenge us to find a way to maximize this moment. So the show must go on, close quote. In terms of the future for Bronner Brothers and your father's philosophy, Will the business have to change at all due to this pandemic, change any of its practices, its approaches? What's your takeaway from all this as you see for the future of Bronner Brothers? I believe all businesses will have to change because of COVID-19. So it's, it's one of the things uh, that resilience of, of entrepreneurship is something that you have to have. And not even with COVID, you know, business just has ups and downs and challenges and obstacles. My father, years ago when he was running the show, he had a sibling to die. He had to go out to the funeral and while he was there, another sibling died. He had to leave that funeral and go to a, another sibling's funeral. And coming right out of two funerals of siblings, he had to still produce the show. He said the show must go on. So he understood that the people had needs. And even though he had a lot of personal things going on, they needed that show. So there are always going to be obstacles in, in any business. So part of entrepreneurship is, is that resilience is that flexibility to be able to see and analyze what you have to offer and and transform it so just like we did from hair products into the hand sanitizer mm -hmm. so we're also uh, saw a need in the, in the beauty community as they open up these shops they're not able to find the ppe materials to provide their safety so we're sourcing those now for them to be able to put it in an affordable package for them so that's another thing that we're working on so we're we don't know what all the future will hold but we do know we'll have to be flexible we'll have to look at the needs and find the best solutions to help uh, stylists and barbers your father's philosophy still runs deep for the business james bronner senior vice president of show operations for bronner brothers the annual Bronner Brothers International Hair Show, a little different this year. It's all virtual. James, thanks for taking the time. I always enjoy speaking with you. Thank you. I always enjoy being on. Closer Look continues here on 90.1 WABE. 
This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Yes, we know the coronavirus has changed so many aspects of our daily lives. Maybe you all are sick of me talking about it, but you know what? This is the work that we do because it's important. So it's changed many aspects of our daily lives, including the way we work. Now think about this. How many startups were expected to launch during this time and have now been delayed? Also, is it a good time to even start a business? In my conversation with Atlanta-based entrepreneur and business leader Jewel Burke-Solomon, she talked about how the COVID-19 pandemic could change Atlanta's tech landscape. And Jewel Burke-Solomon was most recently named head of Google for startups for the United States. And while some things have changed, many of Jewel Burke-Solomon's observations about this pandemic's effect on Atlanta's tech scene hold true. Let's revisit that conversation. Jewel Burke-Solomon, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate this. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. You know, we're so used to the tech field and startups being able to enhance our daily lives, every aspect of our life. But this is different because now we have a pandemic that's affecting everything that we do. What do you, what do you make of all this, just through your personal lens? So personally, Obviously, this has been something that something unlike anything that we've seen before and that, that I've seen before in my lifetime. And for me, I've been primarily concerned about making sure that my family is okay and making sure that the teams that I work with are okay um, personally and, and just in terms of their mental health and their their physical well-being as well. Um, so that's been top priority for me. But as it relates to working from home. Um, Fortunately, this is something that I'm pretty used to. I've done it in the past before, and so it hasn't been too big of an adjustment. Um, and it's something that I think being in the tech industry and having all the tools at my mm-hmm. disposal, it's made it a lot easier. But I know there are a lot of people who are still trying to figure out how do you uh, successfully work from home and how do you use the technology that's available to do that. And something that we've heard a lot regarding this pandemic is, look, what this pandemic is also exposing, as if some people didn't know, inequities that lie within the haves, the have-nots, the connected, and those who are not connected, particularly in certain communities, even in the rural communities. What's your take on all that? Because one could say, well, did we really need a pandemic to expose all of this? Well, I would say we absolutely did not need a pandemic to expose all of this, but I'm somewhat happy that people are now seeing the inequities that we already knew existed. Um, And you think about the fact that we are asking uh, students to do digital classrooms, but many of them don't have access to the computers to do that or to the the networks, the Wi-Fi to do that. Um, And so I think there are some companies that have stepped up and helped to make sure that um, students have access to the, the tools that they need, the hardware that they need. Um, but it's it's real. It's true that there's so many inequities that exist. That di- the digital divide is real, and um, there's a lot more work to be done to ensure that folks can work from home if if we're in this state for for a while, and students can continue to learn even if they have to be at home. So you think there will be some lessons learned that can be utilized even in the tech industry moving forward? Absolutely, and I, I think access to um, reliable internet and and the devices that we need to stay connected is is something that I'm hoping um, companies really see that this is something that everyone should have access to and not just the folks who, who can afford to pay for it. 
Let's shift to what you are heavily involved in. You know what it's like to be that tech startup, that entrepreneur taking an idea, a concept to design, to execution. So you know what that's like. If you are someone who right now is in the midst of that, how do you encourage them to weather this storm? So I think the first thing is just deciding that you are going to weather the storm. So it's a mental exercise to say, this is going to be a hard time, but I'm going to get through it. And I think having that conversation with yourself as a, a leader, a founder, is the first thing that you have to do. And then from there, it's really taking inventory of, you know, what are my current costs? What does my team look like? How can I trim the fat and really bring things down so that I can keep enough cash in the bank to be able to continue my business. So I'm talking to a lot of founders about, you know, looking at their expenses and deciding which things can they freeze for the next few months or the next several months. We don't know exactly how long this is going to last. So I'm really instructing people to think about this as a, a longer term ordeal and not something that's just going to be around for the next month or two. Um, so those are some things that I think are super important as you think about how do you weather this storm. If you are a venture capitalist, if you are an angel investor, but because we are in this pandemic, Jewel, do you have concerns that there might be a decrease in, in funding from venture capitalists? Well, I am an angel investor, and I'm also a fund manager for a new fund called Collab Capital. So I'm looking very closely, of course, on you know investing and what it, what makes sense right now in this time. And what I'm seeing is that you know this is actually a really great time to be investing in startups and particularly the ones that are coming up with innovative ways to address the problems that are popping up right now that we didn't mm -hmm. even think about before. So from an investment perspective, and for those who are investors or are looking to become investors, this is actually a great time to be looking at startups and, and trying to see where you can plug in and uh, join companies that are addressing the problems that we're facing right now. If you're just joining us, I'm joined by Jewel Burke-Solomon. She's an Atlanta tech entrepreneur and also newly named head of Google for Startups for the U.S. So we're talking about COVID-19's effect on Atlanta's tech industry as the, the nation as well. Let's shift to that because Atlanta's tech landscape, we did a whole week dedicated to Atlanta's tech scene. And we heard, depending on whom you ask, everyone said, yeah, Atlanta has become this this technopolis, in a sense. Uh, first of all, do you agree with that? I do. I do. I am uh, very excited about all the things that are happening in the tech scene in Atlanta. I think that uh, there's all the pieces to the puzzle, if you will. I think we have some of the best talent in the country as far as uh, folks that are building great companies and the people that can actually join them in building the companies are the technologists. I think we have um, cooperation from some of our large corporations to actually be customers to the startups. And um, one of the things that I, I think we need to continue to improve on is that investment landscape. But I'm also seeing there are new funds that are popping up and folks that are getting more excited about investing in the innovators. So I do think that we have all the pieces. I think there is still a lot of work to be done. Um, I, I listened to some of the episodes from, from that week and um, I know that, you know, there's right, there are critiques and, and rightfully so around mm -hmm. um, some of the inequities that exist even in the tech landscape in, in Atlanta. But I, and I know a lot of other people are really focused on ensuring that everyone can uh, participate and um, really be a part of the success that is to come from Atlanta's tech ecosystem. 
unfortunately, there are obviously the layoffs, the rising number of unemployment benefit claims. And when we talk about the, the tech world, people may think, oh, maybe there's not that many layoffs. But just at the time of this interview, I know Yelp had massive layoffs. But you think of that particular model because they rely on consumers interacting with them based on being out, spending their money. Well, that has come to a halt. Uh, will it be easy, you think, for the tech industry to, to bounce back with their workforce development because of some of the layoffs as opposed to other sectors? Um, I don't know about easy. I think that in some cases, depending on kind of what tech, tech obviously is a huge industry, so it's hard to generalize, but depending on what specifically companies are focused on, it may be easier or harder based on kind of where their, their targets are. Um, but I do see that there's a lot of opportunity for people to enter the tech sector and really um, you know, improve their skills around coding and um, product development right now, because I do think there will be a lot more opportunities in technology as we kind of continue to be in this COVID season. And as we exit it, I think, as you mentioned before, telework is going to be even bigger than it is now, I think, mm -hmm. after this, this season. Um, and so getting to a point where you have the ability to work from home, which a lot of folks that are in development can do, um, I think that's a, a great thing to be doing in this time. What was the feedback you heard from them? I imagine they talked about some concerns and challenges right now. What'd you hear? So I think everyone that we work with is is really just concerned about how do they make adjustments and and know that they can continue on with their business. So depending on what industry they're in, they're, I'm seeing a wide range of, of folks um, being affected. So, you know, but in some times, in some cases, it's actually... A positive effect. So we have we work with a lot of ed tech startups, and they're actually seeing a, a boom in their business because parents are at home and they're looking for ways to entertain and educate their children. And so we have a few companies that are actually seeing this as a great time for their business. Um, so that's been an interesting conversation and challenge to help them figure out how do they actually scale operations in this time. Um, and then you have other businesses that are are having to scale back. And they're having to make some difficult decisions about um, cutting employees or, mm -hmm. um, you know, trying to figure out how do they continue to generate revenue in this time, get creative and adjust and, and make uh, changes in their business models. So all of those things are, are what we're spending a lot of time working with founders to help them navigate. And um, the, the hope is that they can come up with plans that allow them to continue operations through uh, through the end of this this time. Jewel, you are considered a leader in this tech space. I want to end with you giving your own personal message to other leaders. When I talk to so many CEOs and directors, they always talk about the importance of leading during a crisis. So through your lens, what do you say to those who are in those positions and what they must do now for their teams or for their organizations? My message is, is just to put your people first. I think folks are going to really remember how they were treated in this time. And the, the interesting thing about this particular crisis that we're in is that it's a very human crisis. And, and we never know uh, when we're going to be personally impacted or when our family members are going to be impacted. And it's it's our health that we're talking about. Um, and so that is the, the key message that I'm thinking about and that I would impart to others is that 
at the end of the day, of course, we want businesses to continue to thrive and be successful, but we also want people to live um, and, and have their health. And so that's that's what I'm doing is checking in with folks, making sure that that they're healthy, they're safe, um, and that they are in good spirits. Because I think this is a unique challenge in that you know we're we're going to have to mourn differently. You know, we're going to have people. Um, loss around us and not going to be able to um, funeralize folks in the same ways. And those are some of the things that um, are the kind of implications of all of this that are really hard to, to grapple with. Um, but I think if we continue to put that first in our minds, as far as how we interact with people, how we check in on them, and how we even um, interact with our customers as business owners, uh, I think that that will make all the difference. Jewel Burke-Solomon, newly named head of Google for Startups for the U.S., and also an Atlanta-based tech entrepreneur. Thank you so much for taking the time. Good information, good advice. Thank you, Jewel. Thank you. That was my conversation back in April with Jewel Burke-Solomon, an Atlanta tech entrepreneur and newly named head of Google for Startups for the U.S. Now, since that conversation aired, I've also spoken to numerous business leaders, developers, and entrepreneurs. So we're going to keep the conversation going about how the pandemic has affected the way we all work. I want to hear from you especially the gig workers or independent contractors. If you'd like to share your story, send me an email, rose at wabe.org. That's rose at wabe.org. If you're a gig worker or independent contractor, how are you doing in all of this? Let me know. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.